I think you grow into a name over time. It's taken me quite some time, honestly. I'm in this position by luck. No other reason. I fell in love with Bill. He fell in love with me. We decided to get married. Then you say, okay, if you're in this position, you have to do something for the women that you've met. And I have met women, so many women who feel that they are voiceless. They're voiceless in their communities, sometimes in their families. They certainly are voiceless on the global stage. And so I just have decided that at some point I would have to step into this name and into this role and give them voice. And so that's how I think about it. And that's what I do um, almost no matter what room I walk into these days. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. My guest today is known around the world as someone who's dedicated her life to improving the human condition, eradicating poverty, and promoting the rights of marginalized people. Melinda Gates grew up in Texas. Back then, she was known as Melinda French. As a teen, she was on the high school drill team. She learned to code on her family's computer, an Apple III. And she pursued that love in college, studying computer science and business. After graduation, she found a job at a little startup called Microsoft. Today, she's a mother, a wife, the creator of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, a philanthropist, and the founder of Pivotal Ventures. She spends her time measurably making the world a better place. Here is the incomparable Melinda Gates. Melinda Gates, welcome to No Limits. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. I'm thrilled to have you here with us, and we're going to get into the work you're doing to invest in women's businesses, but I want to start with your backstory. So you grew up in Dallas, Texas, right? one of four kids, mm-hmm. and your father was an aerospace engineer that worked on the Apollo missions. How much did you recognize at the time growing up an interest in STEM, in technology and mathematics? Well, I don't think it was really until I got to eighth grade that I realized I enjoyed math so much. And then it was in high school when I really started to say, wow, you know, I had a teacher who uh, really believed in girls being good in math. She was my math teacher, but she saw these computers at a convention she went to. She came back to the high school and said to the principal, who was a nun, we have to get a few of these for the girls to learn to code. And it was when I started coding on that computer, back then it was an Apple II computer, that I said, wow, I really love this. And what was it about it that you loved? I think I've always enjoyed puzzles, and I think the idea that you can solve something and use your mind, and you don't really know where you're going. You're in the middle of it, and it's actually kind of confusing, but you know there's going to be an end product. And I think the other thing I liked about it is that I think one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that it's very creative to code. You're creating something new, and and you come up with your own solutions. Not everybody's solution is the same. And so I loved the mix of the math side of it, my mind with the creative side. And I just absolutely loved it. We've done a couple of stories. Chance the Rapper, for example, Mm. supports coding in Chicago. And I saw a number of young women, fifth graders, working together on coding. And that point about it being a puzzle and that once you start to learn the framework of coding, you recognize how many different things coding can accomplish. Absolutely. 
And it's and you start to see, oh, well, okay, if I did this and I took that path, then I could create this or I could create that. And you start to see, oh, well, every time you do something, you realize there's a different way you could have done it, but that you're actually creating something new that's never existed before. That's actually in a certain way really empowering too. How much of an influence was your father given his background? Yeah, both of my parents were incredible influence on me, um, both because they ran a small real estate investment business. They ran it together. My mom did that during the day. But my dad, because he was working on these Apollo missions, he would talk to us about how his engineering teams were better when he could bring a woman onto the team. And I would often at the company picnic that happened once a year in the summer, I would meet these amazing female engineers. And I don't think, I certainly didn't know at the time what a huge influence that was on me. But the fact that my dad saw women being great at engineering and saw that his daughters or his son sons could be great in engineering, that's a powerful influence on a girl. I often think about that in my own life. My dad would take us to school like Bill Gates Mm. did with your children, as well as really between my sister and I fostering an interest in mathematics and telling us to believe in ourselves that we could do anything. And I understand he purchased... The first family computer. He did. An Apple III. An Apple III. There were not very many of them made. (laughs) There were 2,000 or something Apple III's made, and he managed to get his hands on one. He did. And he got his hands on it because he thought for us as girls, he could see that we were, the two girls were the oldest in the family, and he could see that we were interested in coding in high school, and so he thought he would further that. And... Because my parents had this real estate investment business, they needed to be able to keep the books. And so we learned early on how to use spreadsheet, which was back then VisiCalc. And so we would keep help my parents so my uh, keep the books on the Apple III. And so my sister and I also learned the flows of money through this yes. real estate business. And so we ended up learning both sides of it, which was super interesting. Which makes a lot of sense then why you ended up pursuing both computer science and economics at Duke. That sort of combined bind both of those worlds. Absolutely. And I was always interested in business in general. And so I took that computer science and economics degree. And then I said to myself, wow, I actually want to get an MBA because I want to be able to mix the two together when I go out into the workforce. When you think about STEM education, why do you think it is that with all of this focus, I'd say really in the last five years, with all of the focus, why do you think it is that it still isn't something that's truly appealing in equal numbers to women? Why are we not seeing more women in these degree programs? Well, I think that we've really only woken up to the problem, to be honest, in five years. And when something becomes systemic, it's hard to change. Doesn't mean it can't be changed. I absolutely think we will change it. But it's become an industry where because girls haven't seen themselves in it or young women 15 years ago, they don't see it as being welcoming. They don't see the computer science course that's attractive to them. They don't have a role model telling them, of course, you could do this. And you don't have to look like a white guy in a hoodie. You can look like anything you want to look like. <laughs> We've we lost a lot of opportunities for women. And so now we're just now have we woken up to the problem and we're honestly just now starting to really make investments on behalf of getting more girls and young women into technology. Was Microsoft your first job out of business school? It was my it was my first full-time job. I had had several good summer internships. I'd worked for IBM for two summers. But yes, it was my first full-time role. 
So how did you choose Microsoft? Well, it's a bit of an interesting story, which is I was lucky enough to have a full-time offer waiting for me at IBM after my two summers. And my parents had really encouraged my siblings and me to go out of state for college and to pick any industry we wanted to work in, no matter where. But this particular offer was in Dallas for IBM, which is where my I grew up and where my parents were. Anyway, on spring break, I went back to IBM and they said, are you ready to accept our offer? And I said, well, I've looked at a lot of companies. I've turned them all down, but there's one last company I want to look at. And they said, would you mind telling us who it is? And I said, well, it's this little company, Microsoft, up in Seattle. Microsoft had just gone public. And um, the woman who was to be my hiring manager at IBM said, oh, wow, if you get an offer from that company, you should take it. Wow. And she floored me. And I thought, oh, my gosh. So I really (laughs) – and I said to her, why would you say that? And she said, because a company that's growing that fast in this industry, your opportunities would be limitless as a woman if you do well in there. And you would move up very quickly uh, in a career there. And so I had my eyes open when I went to interview at Microsoft, but I didn't – I still thought I was going to go back to IBM and work there. But then when I interviewed at Microsoft, it just – the – excitement was palpable. And I wanted to create things, create products that were changing the world. And they absolutely were back then. And they still are. What a powerful statement to the value of a really strong human resources department. And by the way, the importance of those individuals when it comes to both hiring practices as well as this conversation around women and progression in the workplace. Absolutely. We have an influence on one another as human beings, whether you're a man or a woman. And what we tell other people about their limits versus their opportunities and their trajectories, those messages are incredibly important. And the fact, you know, even for me, I can name the three most important conversations. They all had to be with females, had to do with females um, in my career. And, you know, we need to make sure that girls and young women know you absolutely can be an amazing coder and you can have an unbelievable career in the tech sector. So I have to ask, what were the three most important conversations? Well, the one was with a woman who was uh, gave me some college counseling advice in Dallas who I'd gone to, who I respected, and she thought I should look closer to home mm-hmm. for college. And I was angry, actually. I thought that was not true. And I kind of used that anger to fuel myself. And luckily, my parents said, no, 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 you're capable of getting into any university you care to get into. And, and I did I did get into Duke and several others. So I had that one. I had my computer science teacher, as I mentioned, Mrs. Bauer in high school, who just said, you know, girls can be great at math. Girls can code. And then I had this woman at, at my hiring manager at IBM who said, OK, you know, if you want to really advance quickly and not go through every rung of a ladder in a corporation, but, you know, move very quickly with opportunity, Microsoft would be the place. So you get to Microsoft. Your hiring class was a group of 10 and you were the only woman. Right. What was that like? What was the culture like back then? This is 1987. This is 1987. So, yes, the hiring class was 10 MBAs, nine young men and, and myself. And that didn't bother me at all, honestly, because I had worked when you're in computer science in college, the women were dropping away very quickly. So sophomore and junior year, I was coding all with on male teams. So I was used to that. I actually enjoyed that. I had great, great partners that I coded with in college. So that wasn't unusual. But it did strike me that in our orientation at Microsoft, there was one of the MBAs, we were just getting to know one another, um, who really kind of picked an argument, a fight with uh, one of the people who was presenting, a, a senior person. 
And and it was a very acerbic conversation. They got in this very tense conversation. I thought, oh, my gosh, is this the culture I'm coming to? Um, lo and behold, later, I got to be friends with that uh, person. And <laughs> and I said to him, do you remember doing that? He says, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you remember that. I'm so embarrassed. He said, I had a professor who told me literally the week before in one of my MBA classes that I needed to be more assertive. <laughs> I said, oh well, you certainly gosh. scared me in that moment. It's funny you, you mentioned that because I remember early on. So I I really liked mathematics growing up and I studied economics in college and I went into finance initially. And the culture of being on the trading floor initially was so shocking to me because of all of the pushback, because I had come from this world where I, I thought you're supposed to essentially look up to your boss you're not supposed to challenge what they're doing. Definitely. And that surprised me going out into industry is that, you know, I think maybe you saw on the trading floor, the elbows are pretty rough, right? Yes. And um, and also, I remember even in college being in a class where, you know, I'd come from an all-girls Catholic school. So when a teacher asked a question, you raised your hand and waited to be called on. I got into college and very soon had to learn it was a new game. Teacher poses a question to the class. It's the first one to shout the loudest. And so... Um, I got used to that some in college and then in industry, I had to learn to be part of that world and to be able to really defend your ideas to the very limit. That if you wanted your voice to be heard, you had to A, know what you were talking about and B, defend your point of view. And I got good at it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but I certainly not got good at it. I learned how to play that game, Um, but it wasn't actually how I wanted to be in the world. I think a lot of women who have have been to this point successful in that world would say they figured out how to play the game in various ways. Do you believe that that is the key or should we be addressing the rules of the game and the culture of the game? We should absolutely be changing the rules of the game and the culture. And I think one of the things that makes me actually optimistic about where we are with women in the United States, we still have gaps for sure, and we can talk about those. But when I see the generation coming up behind me, and I talk to women who are in their 20s and 30s, they're about making sure all women get pulled up, all women, which means changing the rules of the game. And it means creating cultures that aren't subcultures, but are, this is not speaking up and saying, this is not the right culture. Whereas when I talk to women, honestly, who are over 60, who did make it in the male world and rose up, it's often one person or two people. And there's honestly some guilt there. They'll say to you, I assimilated. I I became the one, but I couldn't stand alone for everyone. Now we're getting enough women up in society that we need to keep making sure we lift all women. And we need to say, we're not going to play the game the way it's been played before. If it's a subculture, then you're sort of relegated to whatever is happening on the side, not the main game. Exactly. And they say, oh, well, that works in that small pocket over there. Of course, it works for them. They must be doing something different. Maybe they're the soft players or they're, you know, people will denigrate that group. And so now we have to say, no, this is what's right for society. And uh, it's one of the reasons I become really passionate about even paid family medical leave in the United States, not maternity leave, paid Mm -hmm. family medical leave. Because men and women are working. Men and women have families and they're caring for elderly parents. We have an, an aging population. And at the same time, we're having young children. 
we can't expect women to do two jobs 100%. That doesn't work. And so to be one of eight countries in the world where we don't have paid family medical leave, that is just crazy. You know, what are we saying about society? We should be saying, let's create a work force today in a workplace that supports men and women who want to work and earn a great income and have a great career and who have children. Exactly. And just I think it's just 14 percent right now of employees in this country have any type of paid family leave policy. We're a culture that cares about family, but when it comes right down to it, you don't see it in the workplace yet. That's right. And we need paid family medical leave at the national level and at the state level. And we should just do it. A handful of states have done it. My state has just recently done it. They've passed a very good policy led by Republicans and Democrats, because these are families who say, no, we see what the workforce is like and what the workplace could and should be like. So let's create the workplace we all believe in. Let's not live anymore in a 1950s workplace that assumes one person goes to work, usually the man and the woman stays home and takes care of the kids. That's not reality anymore. You were inside of Microsoft from 1987 to 1996. I understand There were a lot of people who wanted to work for you. And by the end, you were managing a team of almost 2,000 people, 1,700 people. How did you think about leaving? Because I would imagine that was a difficult thing for you, given how much energy and time you had spent in your life dedicated to building that career. Well, I I absolutely loved my career at Microsoft. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, I learned so much. And so it was a hard decision on the one hand to leave the workforce. The good news was I always knew I would come back. I didn't know what capacity I would come back in, uh, but I absolutely knew it was going to be for a time. Um, The other thing was I had a very supportive husband, right? I mean, Bill was supportive of that. I actually shocked him when I told him I was going to leave. I had already made the decision. And he was completely shocked because he knew how much I loved my career. But when we sat down to talk about it, I said, you know, honey, you can't be the CEO of a tech company. I know how hard charging you have to be to run this business. And we have these values we both agree we want to instill in our kids Somebody needs to be home to do that. And um, I know that the choice I got to make isn't a choice that all women get to make. Um, So my experience is not everybody's experience, but I was lucky in that sense. But I always knew I wanted to do something, come back into the workforce. And Bill is actually one of the people who nudged me to do that maybe even sooner than I would have otherwise, because he could see that I was fulfilled when I got to do both pieces. I loved my kids. I loved raising them. And I had talents that I wanted to contribute to society. So I wanted to work. I talked to a number of friends and women in the industry about this question of why isn't there somewhere in between where you can play at the top of your game, but it's not an 80, 100 hour work week? Do you think we'll ever get there? Do you think that we're moving in a direction where that's possible and not just for women, but for men as well who want to be engaged fathers and engaged parents? Yes, I think we need to create jobs that work in ways that meet family needs. So even when I was at Microsoft, there were only two women doing it, but there were two women they allowed to share a role. And boy, when those women were on, I worked with them. They were (laughs) 
full on. Get it done. Get it done. And I see that in the medical field. You see many, many pediatricians these days that have shared practices with a man and a woman or two women often. And so I think we need to look at our jobs and think about how they can work. Technology gives us the chance. You're seeing more people do some of their hours from home. Um, So, again, I think we have to imagine the workplace that we want and we have to move towards creating it. But we have to have those conversations and make some decisions about that. And, again, when you start to get more women at higher roles in corporations and enough of them, they can start to change the workforce because there are many men in the workforce that want to change, too. But you have to have women rise up enough and then lock arms with men and say, we're just going to do this. You and Bill met at a business dinner in New York. Hear more from Melinda Gates after a quick word from our sponsor. So you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. You and Bill met at a business dinner in New York as a result of Microsoft. And it seems like philanthropy and changing the world is not just something that you do now, but it was something that probably came up a lot throughout your relationship. Yes, it would. Certainly not at the first dinner. (laughs) But I would go during the years that we were dating, you know, we got to know one another's families. And I would often go to dinner on Sunday night with Bill's uh, family, his parents at the dinner table. And they were often talking about his dad's career. But the many boards that his mom sat on when women weren't on many boards, she was on the United Way board at the national level. She was on a phone board. She was on a bank board. And so we would talk about and she was on the Children's Hospital board about giving back and giving back both in the community, but even at the national level. And she had expectations of Bill, as did his dad, that he run a United Way campaign when that wasn't even that popular at Microsoft. Microsoft ran a very popular United Way campaign. So we had it from his family. And my family in Dallas had always been deeply embedded in volunteerism and giving back in the community. My parents purposely sent me to a high school whose motto was serviam, that is to serve. So I served in the Dallas County Courthouse. I served in the public schools. I served in the hospitals. My parents were also involved with our own church in making sure that they were volunteering and even pushing back on the church when they didn't believe some of the things the church was doing was right. So we had very active and engaged families in the community. And we believed that it was important to give back to your community and give back to the world. That was the ethos of both of our families. When you ultimately made the decision to create the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, how much from the moment of conception to what you're now focused on today, has that changed? Has that stayed the same and true to the original principles? Well, I would say we've been quite true to our original principles. We, Bill and I decided before we got married that this vast resources that came from Microsoft would event, the majority would go back to society. Um, we came pretty early on in the first couple of years to what is our belief as a couple. 
um, when we got involved in philanthropy and the belief that all lives have equal value became the guiding principle very early for the foundation. And from what we set up from about 2000 on, that is really held, that we are trying to help people lift themselves up in the world, whether they live outside the United States or whether they're in the United States. And so we've really stuck with global health and global what we call development, that is giving people the tools to lift their lives, lift themselves out of poverty. We've really stuck with those two areas in the developing world for the most part. And in the U.S., we think the thing that gives people um, equality is a great education. And so we've been very dedicated to trying to fix the U.S. public education system. Since the millennium, one billion people have been brought out of poverty. Technology clearly plays a huge role in that. How do you think about technology? Because we live in this moment in time where there's a lot of conversation about the pros and cons, the benefits and the downsides. It's fundamental. And But when Bill and I say technology, we mean all kinds of innovation. So innovations in science, in new vaccines, that's what's kept people alive, in new medicines, in seeds that are drought resistant and pest resistant. And we mean in computer technology, that phone that's in your pocket. Without new seeds, the Green Revolution wouldn't have happened in Asia, wouldn't have lifted that many people, as you quoted, out of poverty. It was that new technology, that seed. Now, it wasn't applied completely evenly, and there were some problems. It was over-fertilized. But we can take those lessons now and take them to Africa and make mm-hmm. changes. So Bill and I absolutely believe in fundamentals of innovation, changing things for society. But it has to be applied in the right way. For instance, in education, you're absolutely right that with more people having cell phones in their pocket, more people being connected to the Internet, there's an opportunity for great education. A phone or a computer will never, ever replace a teacher, but it can augment that learning experience. Now, we have to get the phone out evenly, and we have to get the technology out more evenly to places all over the world where not everybody yet has access to a cell phone or to the Internet. I, I heard a statistic the other day that two-thirds of the world – currently has a cell phone mm-hmm. in their hand. And not that long ago, it was 3%. So very, there's been really quick adoption, but that that sort of uh, in unequal distribution really changes things. And that's a part of your goalkeepers report where you mentioned Africa. Africa is clearly a place of focus where in China and India, we've seen a great deal of people come out of poverty. But in Africa, where the population is growing, we haven't seen the same kind of results. That's right. Because in Africa, we need we haven't made enough investments yet. So if you look at the population in Africa today, 60% are under age 25, whereas in Europe, it's about 27% of the population is under 25. In the US, it's about 35%. We, If we make the right investments in health and in education, quality education for the youth, they are begging us for it. If we help make the investments, help their governments make those investments for quality education, that population has so much potential, they will lift up their communities, their economies, the continent. But conversely, if we don't make those investments in what we call human capital, health and education, you won't get the amazing economic benefits that you're seeing in India and China. Those investments that have been made systematically in India and China now over you know two decades, we are seeing the results of that. 
we need to make those same types of investments in Africa. What's the biggest challenge to doing that? I think it's getting the world to pay attention and realize that these problems are solvable, that it's not limitless, that you don't put in foreign aid or money forever. People sort of have this sense of it's hopeless or my money won't make a difference or why do we help people on the other side of the world? They're not like me. And we have to see that they are exactly like us. When you go and visit men and women, which I do all the time in Africa, and you ask them what their hopes and dreams are, you just ask that question. They all, every one of them says, my hopes and dreams are that my child gets an education to get out of the situation I'm currently in. And when I think about U.S. parents, when I think about my parents' dreams for me and my siblings, it was a great education. Mm -hmm. What are my dreams for my own three children? It's a great education so they can meet their potential, right? Whatever that is. And so we need to see the world. We need to go back and remember. We, we forget as a world that South Korea, we used to give them aid. They were a low-income country. Now they have risen up. And guess what? Not only do we not give them aid, they give aid to the rest of the world. That is the possibility in Africa. And we have to keep seeing that possibility. And we have to keep making these investments. And they will absolutely get there. If you could do one thing change one thing in the world right now, what would that one thing be? I would give all 214 million women who are asking us for contraceptives access to contraceptives. When you think about what changed the United States, what allowed women to work and to be part of the workforce, it was the pill. And in Africa, women are begging us to give them. They've had them for a while and then they've been pulled back or the supply's not there. They know about them. Contraceptives are the greatest anti-poverty tool that has ever been created because you know what? A woman can space the births of her children. She can feed them. The family can educate the kids and the mom has a chance of going to work. Whereas if she has six children back to back to back to back, we are keeping her in a life of poverty. And if we gave her access to contraceptives, she could begin to lift herself and lift her family out of poverty. We have seen that happen all over the world in country after country. But if you don't do that, the converse is true. You mentioned growing up, you went to a Catholic school. You grew up with the Catholic faith. Catholic Church hasn't always been favorable towards contraception. How, would, how do you approach that, given your religious background? Well, for a very long time, I would travel in the developing world. I've been traveling since 2000. And um, I would be there to ask women about vaccines. I'd be in remote villages. I'd be in townships. I'd be in the city. And when I would ask about a vaccine, when I would stay long enough, they would ask me about a shot. It, particularly, they use this shot in Africa, um, an injection that is reproductive health, was contraceptives. And so as I would wrestle with that, and I would think, why is this not being given to women? Why do they not have access? And I started to learn about it. I kept saying to myself, we have to do this. And yet my Catholic faith, my upbringing, and the political heat, quite honestly, in the United States, I didn't really want to step into that. That's a, that's a tough thing to do. And yet I kept thinking, how can I turn away? I mean, these are literally women would beg me for these tools. And I kept thinking, no, I have to be brave and I have to face what I believe. And what do I believe? I, I use these tools. I counsel my three children, my two daughters and my son to use contraceptive tools. And so I think if that's my belief, I have to wrestle with my faith and what I believe in. And I did talk to my family. I talked to a number of former priests and nuns who I was close to. 
And in the end of the day, the counsel I got was follow your conscience. And I would rather keep babies alive than not give women the tools that they're asking us for that will keep their children alive. Because if they have children too often and too young, um, their babies die. And I've, I've literally seen children dying in the developing world because they come prematurely because the woman's just had another baby right before that. Given who you are, what you've seen, what you've witnessed in your lifetime, the power that you have as Melinda Gates, how do you handle intellectually, spiritually, the responsibility that comes with that name? Well, I think it's um, – I think you grow into a name over time. It's taken me quite some time, honestly. But now I um, I take quiet time every single morning, even a morning like this where I'm in New York and it's a busy day. Um, when I go out in the developing world, I take time. I take a day before I come back home to take in everything I've seen. And at the end of the day, you say, okay, if you're in the position that I happen to find myself in, just literally by luck, I'm in this position by luck, no other reason. I fell in love with Bill. He fell in love with me. We decided to get married. Then you say, okay, if you're in this position, you have to do something for the women that you've met. And I have met women, so many women who feel that they are voiceless. They're voiceless in their communities, sometimes in their families. They certainly are voiceless on the global stage. And so I just have decided that at some point I would have to step into this name and into this role and give them voice. And so that's how I think about it. And that's what I do um, almost no matter what room I walk into these days. And I would imagine that part of that led to the development of Pivotal Ventures. Yes, Pivotal Ventures is a company that I formed about uh, three years ago. And it was because I would often be flying home from these trips in the developing world thinking about equality and realizing we don't actually have equality for women anywhere yet in the world. And I started to think, you know, besides the foundation's work, which will always be my primary work, I do want to step into some of the issues in the United States where women don't yet have equality and try and help bring those issues to light and, and make changes there. So Pivotal Ventures was set up to help work on U.S. women's equality issues. As in making investments in companies that are backed by women and people of color, which the, the statistics around venture dollars that go towards both women-backed companies and companies with people of color, I think it's 2% of venture funding goes to women and just 1% of venture funding goes to companies created by women of color. Right, yeah. And I think to me, that says something more about the funders than it does the founders. And um, at the end of the day, the reason I care about women having careers in the technology sector are two reasons. Number one, these are fantastic jobs in the economy. Number two, technology is pervasive. It's everywhere. It's affecting every single thing we do. So not only do I want women to have a seat at the table at the decisions that are being made around technology, but I want them to be the creators and the inventors of the society we want for our children for tomorrow. And so to create a business, you have to have access to capital. We all know that. So if less than 2% of VC funding is going towards women and less than 1% is going towards women of color, I think we have a problem in the United States. 
And so I set out to change something about that. And I started using my voice in that space. But very quickly, I realized I also need to use, I mean, I have another piece that I can use, which is my capital, my money. And so, yes, I decided to invest in um, places like uh, Aspect Ventures or Defy Capital or Female Founders Fund because they expect a return. I expect a really good return on my money. I want to be a smart investor. I am a smart investor. But I also want uh, places that will over-index for women-led businesses so we can get those great ideas out in society and we can have fantastic new businesses that serve all of society. When you look along the way at your life, your career, your family, what's been the toughest lesson you've had to learn? Um, you know, I think it's, over, it, to be honest, it's overcoming the biases in society. I was lucky, right? I had this teacher that I mentioned, Mrs. Bauer, who uh, pushed me forward in computer science. I had parents who were saying you can do anything you want. But when you go out in society and you leave those safe spaces, you're facing a world that often will tell women uh, either directly or indirectly they can't do what they want to do or their dreams aren't, can't be fulfilled. And so I think I had to overcome some of that societal bias early on and say to myself, no, 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 I I can do these things. I can do what Bill does and take a meeting with a prime minister, take a meeting with the president of a country. There's no reason they should expect Bill to come talk to them and not me to come talk to them either alongside him or actually by myself. And um, I had to realize that I can do that, too, and I should expect that for myself. Did that expectation of can't ever fuel your can? Did the did sort of the negativity ever make you charge ahead harder, faster? Absolutely. I tell my kids that I often work against the knots in society. That can be the N-O-T-S, something somebody tells you you cannot do. And I work against the K-N-O-T-S, the gnarly, difficult things. So yes, <laughs> Bureaucracy, I, perhaps? Yes. And I use my anger. For me, I try to channel my anger and use it as fuel to do the opposite, to do what I know is right and to do what I believe in. When I was a kid, there was a point in my life, probably in middle school, where my parents started talking to me about going to an all-girls school. Mm. And by the way, complete respect to all-girls programs. I think there's wonderful programs. I, as a kid, said, no, I want to compete with the boys in math class. I I want to I want to be, in quotation marks, the best. Mm. And I'll only know if I'm the best if I'm competing against everyone. At the same time, teachers are so fundamental, and and I I think back on so many teachers, both men and women, along the way, who helped me recognize that topics, subjects that were difficult mm. weren't difficult because I was a female. They were difficult because they're difficult for everybody in the class. You bet. And that is so important. They need to normalize for you that it's not because you're a girl or a young woman. It's because this just is hard. And we have to remember to tell all kids, girls and boys, that you got to get used to the uncomfortable. Like you got to get yes. used to the messiness. And every subject when you're learning, it has its own uncomfortableness at the beginning. But you get over that and then you get to the other side and you know you can be good at it. I literally just had this conversation on the phone last night with my 16-year-old daughter because she's doing something new in school, right? And what she's working on is difficult. And uh, I reminded her that she's made it past this early point in other difficult subjects. Yes. And she'll be just fine. Yes. And I, I really believe that if you take on those challenges – 
getting to the other side is that reminder. Then next time you see a challenge, once you've done a few of those, the next time you see it, you start to remember this is how it works. Totally. And you have to remind yourself, get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Were you always that way? No. Uh, it was. I, this is interesting. I would say I was definitely that way in high school. Again, surrounded by other yes. women, right? But then I think I got out in the workforce and I certainly had times where I doubted myself. I had a lot of doubt in the workforce, again, because it was a male environment and I didn't I didn't know if I could do that or and later it became it's not that I just I figured out how to do it as I said but I actually later realized no I need to go back to what I believe in I don't want to do it this way. And um so yes I've definitely had to wrestle with doubt and then I would say coming into the philanthropic space I had to wrestle with doubt again talk about learning I mean I have had to learn topics in biology or diplomacy or whole fields that aren't natural to my background. And so I had to learn to surround myself with people that I felt comfortable being vulnerable with and who would teach me. And I had to listen and ask good questions and say when I wasn't sure about something. But again, when you do that, you create a vulnerable environment for everyone and for everyone then to speak their truth, men and women. And so I've learned that we just have to be vulnerable and we have to be authentic. And we, we, one thing that Bill has always said to me, which has been so helpful, and he's so right, is anyone can learn any topic. We should never doubt whether we can learn a topic. So if you want to go a new direction in your career and you decide you want to learn biology or you want to master you know, some other area, like maybe if I wanted to go master finance more deeply, I could learn it. It's just a matter of putting the time and the energy in. How do you think about your role as a parent in this in this current world where technology is pervasive? There are so many conversations happening. There's so much noise happening. How do you focus on helping to to build your children in some of the ways that you and Bill grew up? Yeah, um, I think it's all about values, values, values. You constantly talk at the dinner table about your values and um we have tried to take our kids out. They've been out many times in the developing world, not just for the great safari trips, which they've gotten to do too, but to actually work in schools and in hospitals. We took them out even when they were very young in ways that wouldn't overwhelm them, but so they could see the world. And I think they know those values that Bill and I are living out. They know our ethos of hard work. But I think you have those conversations around the dinner table and Do you have dinner pretty regularly as a we family? We have dinner quite regularly as a family. And guess what? We all do the dishes together <laughs> after dinner. <laughs> That's which great. I think some people are a little surprised to learn. And it's not always popular to do the dishes, particularly when kids have a lot of homework. It was or... my least favorite job, actually. Of course. Up. <laughs> and Bill and I have a busy day the next day. But it's something we do together as a family. It's, uh, my family grew up having dinner as much as possible. Both my parents worked. We would have late dinners a lot of the time, eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. But we still, that was such a value in our house to be able to come together. Okay, so technology, I just want to go back for a second and think really specifically about technology when you were at Microsoft. Did you have a favorite technology at the time? Oh, gosh. At Microsoft, what was my favorite tech? I don't know. I mean, I was working on Microsoft Word, so um, I probably say probably say it would be Microsoft Word. And now, do you do you have a favorite technology? Headspace. I really? love. Oh my gosh, I love. So that you meditate meditation. every day. I meditate every day, and it makes it so accessible. I had already been a meditator before Headspace came along. 
Um, but the nice thing about Headspace is it just makes it accessible. And even if you are, you know, I don't know, you're stuck in traffic somewhere, you can put it on for three minutes, you know, or you can put it on for 10 minutes, um, or you can meditate on your own. I also, by the way, our listeners, uh, my dear friend and colleague, Dan Harris, also has a great meditation app called 10% Happier. So I recommend checking that one out too, just to just to put a little plug in there for Dan. And Dan, and Bill and I read Dan's book and we both thought it was terrific. Okay, so final question we ask everyone here on No Limits. What is the worst advice you received along the way? Um, the worst advice really probably was from that college guidance counselor who said to me to look closer to home. I mean, what she really meant was for me to look at community colleges. And that was not a good piece of advice. I know why she was concerned. My grades at the time were not as good as they should be. Uh, so for me, really? it was a little bit of a kick Wait in the a minute. pants. Melinda French didn't have good grades? Well, it was freshman year and it was first semester, so, you know, or first quarter. So luckily I could start to bring them up. Um, but yeah, no. And, and so it was a nice kind of kick in the pants, to be honest, for me, because again, I used the anger towards it. But that's not ever good advice to give a kid. I yeah. think you should always give someone the advice to shoot for their dreams and to help them see the path that could get them there. I meet so many kids, uh, and particularly minority kids, in places like you know East L.A. who say to me, oh, everybody says that I shouldn't even go to college. And I, I look at them and say, are you kidding me? Of course you should go to college. And I look at their grades and I look at what they're learning. I'm like, you have the capability to go. So I think that was probably the worst advice I ever gave. But on the flip side, it, it actually worked for me. So maybe it was great advice at the end. Right? Did you talk to your parents about the How did you come yes. through that? Yes, absolutely. I talked to my parents about it and they said, no, 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 that's not our dream for you. And that's not the dream you've ever had for yourself. This is possible. And what I started doing was going and looking up how other girls had done at my school and seeing, okay, if I want to get into the colleges, my parents and I are talking about what do I have to do at this particular school? And it meant being the valedictorian of the school. And so then I had a very high bar to shoot for, and uh, I shot for it and eventually made that. Yeah, you were voted best student and most likely to succeed by your high school. I forgot I about that. that. I found... That's funny. <laughs> How could you forget? It was such a pivotal thing. <laughs> you were also the captain of the Rangerette. Yes, that was a drill team. So growing up in Dallas, there were these drill teams who performed at uh, halftime. So there were over 50 girls in our drill team. And I think that's where I really learned to manage. Because if you can get 50 girls marching on a Friday night and on the bus with all their pom-poms and gloves and everything else and all their emotions, you can manage pretty much any project. Thanks so much for joining us on No Limits. Melinda Gates. Thanks, Rebecca. All right. It is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Marguerite Adzik. She is the founder and CEO of Addison Bay, which is an activewear brand that she created to combine clothing with high function and style. Marguerite says that she's always had an entrepreneurial spirit and as someone who played a Division I sport in college, she played lacrosse at UVA. Guess who else went to UVA? Yeah, raise the roof for Taylor Dunn, our great producer here. Plus, she has experience in the fashion industry post-college, so creating a company like Addison Bay was this perfect combination. Here she is to tell you how she made it happen. My name is Marguerite Adzik, and I'm the founder and CEO of Addison Bay. Addison Bay is a multi-brand active fashion company curating the best assortment of fashion-forward activewear all in one place. I launched this company because I felt like the modern woman is constantly on the move and needs a modern wardrobe to keep up with her active lifestyle. 
As a new mom and entrepreneur, I wanted to develop a one-stop shop for activewear that can be found beyond the gym, where fashion forward doesn't have to mean less function, and where looking good is really feeling good. You can find us at addisonbay.com and also on Instagram at addisonbay. Thanks so much. Congratulations, Marguerite. I wish you continued success. And remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Marguerite and how she built her business. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send us those nominations. Or you can send career questions as well to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I know how busy we are, so we really appreciate it when you take the time to write. I also want to say thank you so very much to those of you who have been leaving us reviews, like this one from Zoila Reyna. She writes, Rebecca Jarvis asked the questions within the questions, so nothing is missed. She's able to pull out the details of success from exciting women. Thank you, Zoila. I really appreciate that. And finally, a shout out to our awesome team here that helps make this happen week after week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn. Welcome to our brand new editor, Brittany Martinez. Research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.